everyone, just a quick note before we jump into episode 10 here. And as a reminder, episode 10 is actually part two of a two-part conversation that Rachel Sass and I had with Isaac Rothschild about asset protection planning. Episode 9 is the part one to that conversation. So if you missed it, go back and listen to that at your convenience. Uh, The conversation was so good, so substantive, and we enjoyed it so much that we decided to release the whole conversation. And the way to do that was to break it into two pieces. So you're about to hear part two. If you missed part one, go back to episode nine, listen to that. And we hope that you enjoy both of them just as much as we did. Thanks so much. period that I think we haven't talked about, but I I think you have to keep in mind in any sort of asset protection planning arena is the bankruptcy look back period for irrevocable trust transfers. Can you explain that? Yeah. So for the most part, you're going to be in a two, when you, when I make a transfer to an irrevocable trust, I'm not receiving consideration for that transfer. So I'm, I'm probably in at least a four year look back period under the state fraudulent transfer statute. Even if I'm doing that without the intent to hinder, delay, or defraud, there's just no consideration. But then there is an additional within the bankruptcy code, a 10 year look back for those self-settled, irrevocable trusts. But that additional six years does require the intent provision, the actual intent to hinder, delay, and defraud. And, you know, if I was not smart enough to, or if I, if a client happened to put in an email that they were making this for some bad reason, they're probably going to get what they deserve. But, you know, those intent provisions, while creating room for doubt on both sides, you know, likely isn't going to, it's going to be the rare case where someone undoes the the full amount. Yeah, perfect. But there, but to answer your question, there's a 10 year look. <laughs> yes. Uh, no, that's perfect. Because the next thing I want to talk about, uh, or I thought we ought to talk about are some of the techniques that are used. And so we'll talk about some of these irrevocable trusts. So one of, well, maybe, maybe this is, this is stepping back a bit in the conversation. We've already talked about LLCs and limited partnerships, but maybe just to break that down slightly more. Again, the idea is that the the owner of an LLC, if they have a creditor against them, that what the creditor can do is stand in their shoes from an economics perspective, not for any other purpose, and collect money if the LLC makes a distribution. It means the debtor can continue to say be the manager of the LLC uh, and family members and friends and everybody else can continue to be members of the LLC and control the LLC. So the debtor could be in a very difficult situation if all they can get is a what's called a charging order and have that right over the LLC asset. If that's a major asset that a debtor owns that would technically be available to satisfy a creditor's judgments against them. So of course, uh, it's common for people to set up LLCs. Uh, The LLC and most of the the limited type company, limited partnership, even corporation statutes say that the owners are not liable for the debts of the company. So if the company itself has debts or liabilities, then the creditors of the company are not supposed to be able to reach up into the owner's hands to satisfy that debt. So there's that added protection. This all assumes that the company is kind of legitimately run, that the technicalities of running the entity are followed, that the entity's assets and the owner's assets aren't being commingled, that the entity's not paying, say, the owner's personal expenses directly, 
which would, would in essence merge the owner's personal life and the business of the, or the putative business of the company together to make them one thing. Uh, because in those instances, the courts have been willing to grant a creditor the ability to reach up to the owner or even to reach, uh, say, a creditor of the owner to reach into the company to pull out company assets to satisfy the owner's debts. Okay, They call it piercing the veil, uh, which we're all very familiar with because we went to law school and they drilled that into our heads. Uh, but the, the very common thing or a common structure is to have a single member LLC. And so the question is, and maybe this is the question for you, Isaac, uh, does a single member LLC grant the owner the same protections from the claims of creditors? Um, so outside the bankruptcy court, and this varies from from state to state. And I, off the top of my head, don't remember the exact answer for Arizona, but the general rule is that it does, um, that most states will still recognize that protection so long as you handle those corporate formalities that, that we were talking about. Now, if that owner of that LLC that owns the entire part of the LLC puts themselves in a Chapter 7 liquidation bankruptcy, now the 100% owner is a third-party trust. And even though they don't have management control, they have all of the stock and they can sell the business and they can they can go right. They can simply ask the court to allow them to treat that business like it's in bankruptcy, too. But outside of the bankruptcy court, it does have that protection. And those assets, so long as the formalities have been uh, respected previously, that those assets won't be subject to either the claims of the owner for the business or vice versa. Yeah. And I think the, the reason you don't know the answer in Arizona is because no one knows the answer in Arizona. There's no court case to tell us exactly what that answer is. Now, the statute on its face says that the only remedy for a, a creditor of a member is to get a charging order. And the statute doesn't say that that is limited to LLC membership interests where the LLC has more than one member. Uh, but I, I have heard quite a few creditor rights type uh, lawyers claim that that it cannot extend to a single member LLC. And the justification I hear the most is that in Arizona, we'll talk about this a bit, but in Arizona, the public policy is that you cannot create a self-settled spendthrift trust. That is a trust for you that you created for yourself that then protects you, uh, protects the assets of the trust from the claims of your creditors. And that setting up a single member LLC is the equivalent of setting up a self-settled spendthrift trust. I don't think that that is as logical a conclusion as they think, um, because trusts and LLCs are not the same thing. Trusts are the product of the common law, which was then incorporated into our statute and the common law rules were incorporating the statute. The policy comes from the common law. LLCs are 100% a creature of statute and not of common law. And therefore, if the statute that created them doesn't say that there's this limitation, then it doesn't exist because it can't just exist out in the ether when the legislature invented the thing that uh, you're talking about. But that, that question hasn't been litigated in a in a published opinion, as far as I'm aware, in the state. So we're sort of lot, uh, left afloat or adrift, and we don't really know the answer, as far as I know. Yeah, and I don't know. Maybe you know a couple more self-settled trusts that have W-2 employees, um, but I don't know a lot of those. LLCs certainly can have W-2 employees, and yeah. there can be a lot of people that aren't beneficiaries, but quite frankly, rely on that LLC for their livelihood as an operating business. I don't particularly, well, obviously, 
is someone that it wouldn't necessarily be described as traditionally creditor friendly, um, very much disagree and think that's a pretty tortured analysis versus really looking at this, this is just holding land for their sole benefit. You know, there is no reason they it's existed for three years. It's not done any other investments. It's just held this land. You know, you can make an argument to say, and I think that's where the case law is developed in a couple of other states where this is not really an operating business. There's not really a risk of liability. The only potential purpose of this pass-through tax entity is to keep that creditors away. Um, is a is a more equitable argument to get in there than to say, well, look, we don't do self-settled trusts, so we can't possibly do single member LLCs. And I think you would, and I even even in that situation, I think that courts would look at the various business structures. If this single member LLC had existed five years before this creditor ever arose, I don't think that a judge cares at all that we don't allow self-settled trusts. That's a single member LLC. You could have or should have known of that, um, especially if there was other reasons. They have other operating businesses that could create potential liability and they need to keep investments separated. That's a perfectly good business justification that a court is going to uphold having an LLC for, even if it's single member. Yeah, I, I, I would be shocked. I, I would be shocked otherwise until the Supreme Court says, no, we've never meant to have single member LLCs. Yeah, uh, until the Supreme Court tells us we're, we're both very wrong about that. Uh, I, I think we can both continue believing what we want. Uh, so um, that, that being said, it is always a better creditor protection to have other owners in your business. Yes. Um, uh, yes. Both from a, from a bankruptcy perspective and a collection perspective, just because now your membership interests, A, the way you've treated the entity, A, looks more reasonable because there's third parties that have let you pay your Safeway bill out of that entity, um, or B, all you're going to get is a minority interest in this anyways. So let's talk about what a substantial discount looks like. Uh, and that, I would say, when uh, asset protection planning is being done is the typical way it's done. So we've talked about sort of a single level LLC or limited partnership structure. In, in practice, most asset protection structures are not single level. They're multi-level or tiered levels where you might have an LLC that serves as a holding company for you, or it might be a trust that serves as a kind of holding entity for you. But below that, there is a partial interest in some entity like an LLC or a limited partnership, which owns yet another partial interest in an LLC or a limited partnership. And the actual operating entity or the invested entities are at the very bottom of this tiered structure. So that if a creditor, your creditor at the very top of the structure wanted to access the asset at the very bottom, they would have to break through every single layer in order to gain access to that asset. And of course, along the theme of uh, we're trying to make things less appealing for a potential creditor, a creditor would have to weigh whether it's worth spending all the money that it takes to litigate these sorts of things at every single level of the structure in order to gain access and get paid from the underlying asset. And so very often in, in these kinds of structures, that's the way you see it. There's not a single entity, there are tiers of entities and they're set up in ways that each tier owns a piece of a company, not 100% of the company. And there are other usually related parties, but sometimes uh, 
unrelated third parties who own the other pieces. Uh, you know, you might have key employees, for example, who own a piece of the equity in the company. And now because you have key employees, that's not just an intra-family deal. You actually have duties potentially to these key employees in the way that you operate the company. Now it looks like a real legitimate company uh, rather than just a run-of-the-mill family business. And uh, it has a little bit more reality to it in terms of whether you're going to be able to convince a judge that it exists in a business form that should grant you the liability protection that the statute wanted to grant you. I, I don't know if you see it any different than that, Isaac. No, I think I think that's very accurate. Um, you know, one of the things that we tend to see among some entrepreneurs is I'm starting up this business. I really think I should have a tiered structure in multiple ways to protect things. And it goes back to kind of that that first statement, which is sure you can do that tiered structure. You're starting up a business. Every dollar is very important to you right now. You don't need three accountants. You don't need three different legal entities where you're either the only person that's going to own all of them, or maybe one of them at some day will have some key people. Let's cross that bridge when we get there versus plan for, you know, the apocalypse of creditor claims coming down on you and how we're going to protect you in the, in the chance that this really does become a successful business or you get to a position where you have a substantial amount of assets. There are many easier ways um, initially of setting that up unless you really have business reasons right off the get-go and there are key people right off the get-go to do that. I mean, the way that traditionally develops is I've got one holding company and I have two separate businesses. And then those businesses then create for their own business purposes, other businesses that they own. And that is when you have that situation, you are protected. Each of those individual businesses should be protected from um, any claims from any of the other businesses. But when you go and ask to go get a loan from your bank and they go, all right, give me your net worth or who's my guarantor. And you say, well, here's the holding company. It owns 10% of 12 different businesses. They're going to say, well, that's nice. We don't care either. We're getting all of the businesses to sign off or you're not getting your money or there's other assets somewhere else. Um, and so you don't want to, you don't want to set up those tiered structures from a strictly this could happen asset protection universe. You want to set them up for the liabilities of this business can never touch the liabilities of this business and they shouldn't be able to interrupt them. Now let's set up a structure that works. The entity structure, you know, we were talking at the beginning of you could set up an elaborate structure that then becomes so unusable that it doesn't really help you out. And that's exactly what can happen, especially with a, a cash poor early stage startup company, if you have an elaborate ownership structure that's there for a, maybe if there's a creditor issue in the future, if the company ever has any value, it can make doing business very difficult. And to your point, it can make creditors, legitimate creditors that you need, like the bank, uh, look at the structure and say, yeah, that's fine. But everybody, everybody, including you personally, is going to have to sign a guarantee. So the structure basically did you no good because the bank is going to be able to have claims on everyone and everything. So usually the way I see it evolve is, say, the company starts up one line of business. In the future, 
they have, they now have key employees that have been working on that line of business. That's been a success. They want to incentivize them. So maybe they set up a slightly different structure to have equity incentives for the new, these employees. Maybe they set up a new, uh, a new line of business or they're generating intellectual property. And so they start spinning off business lines and then the entity structure starts to look like a family tree rather than setting that up in the first instance where there's no reason for you to have four or five entities because you don't have four or five business lines to put in them. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. You're not you're not setting that up. There are that is a place where there are some tangential asset protection benefits, but that's not why you're going through the headache of filing a new tax return, creating a new operating agreement, creating figuring out various membership structures, investing provisions, and other. Yeah. In some states that do not include the state of Arizona, I think the count is, I, I think we're up to 18 or 19 states now that have state statutes that allow you to create a self-settled spendthrift trust. So the one that's closest to us geographically in Arizona would be Nevada. And so the Nevada statute says that you may set up a self-settled spendthrift trust. Most of these statutes in different varieties allow for uh, defrauded creditors to access the trust assets, at least if they bring their claims within a certain period of time. And those claim periods differ by state. Sometimes the statute will allow the settlor of the trust, the potential debtor, uh, to set the trust up, say publish a notice in the paper, and then condense down the period of time in which uh, creditors would have to bring a claim, who their creditors who were defrauded would have to bring a claim to claw assets back out of the trust. But the idea is that you could create a trust for yourself, you're the beneficiary, uh, and you therefore get to have the benefit of the assets and the trust, but your creditors cannot access that trust. In Arizona, we say, no, that's not possible. And in every other state other than uh, these 18 or 19 that I'm mentioning, the rule is no, that's not possible. There is a, a common perception or misperception that, oh, and I should mention, sorry, that there are also foreign jurisdictions that allow you to do this. A lot of island nations uh, and Belize will allow you to do these sorts of things. And so those are common places for people to try to set these structures up. There's a common perception that, say, if you're, if you're a resident in a state that does not allow these trust structures, and then you set up the trust in, say, another state, say Nevada, where they do allow the trust structure, that you will get the benefit of the Nevada law even though you live in a state that doesn't permit these things and you may be transferring assets that are located, at least initially, in your state that doesn't permit these kinds of structures. There are a handful of bankruptcy cases uh, that I'm aware of, maybe four or five of them now, uh, were in essence in, in the bankruptcy case. There was a transfer that was made from a state that didn't allow self-settled spendthrift trust to a state that did allow them into a self-settled spendthrift trust. And, and then in, in a applying the state law on fraudulent transfers of the home jurisdiction state, the bankruptcy court said, no, we will not respect this trust that you've set up for yourself because it is against public policy where you reside. So in my mind, anyways, there's basically a limitation in, say, in a state of, like the state of Arizona, where to a great degree, you cannot effectively set up these kinds of trusts. Maybe if you can wait out the transfer and fraud look back periods, then you could set up one of these trusts. But until that happens, there's no guarantee that it's going to work. If you put in, say, Arizona real estate 
I think you've really muddied the waters if you've put in assets that actually can be transferred into the other jurisdictions, say intangible assets like investment assets or investable assets, and you can wait out these periods of time and not go bankrupt, uh, then you might be able to use them. But outside of that parameter, you really can't use these trusts to great effect if you reside in a state that doesn't already have them or allow them. But it's a fairly common structure right. in, in asset protection planning, I should say. And, and, you know, I mean, simply because it isn't likely to get upheld. Well, first of all, the last place you want to put one of those type of entities is in a bankruptcy court. You need to do everything you can to avoid ending up in bankruptcy court, because I think that you have a greater chance in state court in traditional collection proceedings to say, nope, that's owned by this trust, that trust is regulated there. You want to go collect against it. Even if the assets are here, you need to try and go get a judgment against that trust before you, you can send the sheriff to go get it. The last place you want to be is a bankruptcy uh, court where you have a trustee standing in your shoes. You have a judge looking you know, substantially at the timing of the debts as they arose and the debtor having $10 million of protected assets in one place and the creditors getting $0 or something much smaller on the return on the back end. And they are going to stretch as far as they can to find what an equitable scenario is. And if you can't reach that resolution themselves, it's going to be hard for them to say, you know, the equitable solution is to let you go free and clear, get your debts discharged and then do what you want um going forward you know i mean but that being said even if i don't think that if a judge eventually got that determination or the ability to make that determination that it would be favorable it may be better that that is set up than it's not even when i get put into an involuntary bankruptcy where three of my creditors force me into there because that trust is going to go cut a deal. You know, if you think if you think that's impregnable, good luck to you. Um, and we'll see if a judge agrees with you. But you've certainly created more leverage than you would have had when all those assets were just sitting in there. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I uh, I often tell clients who tell me they want asset protection that the only thing you can do really, and we're not talking about committing fraud. Okay, so we're not talking about that, but. The only thing you can really do is create future arguments. And you know that if, if you do, if you take a particular action in the future, you will have an argument and arguments create risk, which then can drive people to settle for less than full value. Uh, that's about as good as you can do. Nobody can ever assure you of anything in this area. And so, you know, back to our topic, for example, on like single member LLCs, uh, clients ask me about whether they will protect the assets from creditor claims. And as we've talked about, the answer is, well, I can't tell you for sure. There's not a, there's not a, there's not a case that says that that's the case, but I know what the argument would be if you had it. And I know what the argument would be if you didn't have it. And I would much rather have the argument than not. So, you know, you probably ought to just do it. And that's, that's what you're getting. That's sort of what people are paying for, uh, to put it, put it a different way. Yeah. Some, sometimes they're paying for a barrier. Sometimes, where you have people that, you know, really have very successful businesses with little chance of the debt ever reaching back to them personally, but they want to feel like they've got more additional protection from there beyond just additional insurance, beyond other things. There's things that you can do them, you can provide them, but you're basically just selling them a warm blanket. Like this will help you sleep at night. Mm -hmm. 
don't pay too much for that. Don't, please don't pay too much for that. Yeah. <laughs> now, most of these structures also include a trust, and sometimes they in, include trusts that there's always some acronym for these trusts because estate planners just can't help themselves. One is these, well, let's, let's talk about two of them because I think these are kind of common ones or ones that are um, on, the, on the hot plate for most people doing this planning right now. One's what's called a SPAT, S-P-A-T, a SPAT, and the other is what is called a SLAT, S-L-A-T. And I'm not even sure I can remember what the acronym uh, stands for but maybe Rachel can help me out. Yeah, so we, we, we love our acronyms, just lawyers, goodness. But so the SPAT is a special power of appointment trust. So if you're in a state that you cannot do a self-settled trust, so us in Arizona, um, a SPAT might be something that you might wanna look at. Um, it is an irrevocable trust in which an independent third party holds the power to direct the trustee to make a payment to you. So because the settlor is never really a beneficiary and because the trustee doesn't have the actual discretion to make a distribution to you, and it's really it's that third party, that independent third party that can make uh, that payment, then you don't really have those inherent risks of a self-settled trust. Um, and so you kind of get to avoid that a little bit. And basically your independent third party can make distributions to you in the future. And so you can have, uh, you have the um, you know, theoretical access to those funds and to be able to kind of benefit from that trust without actually controlling it or truly being a beneficiary of that trust. Yeah. So let me uh, maybe paint a picture here. So uh, I, let's say I have some extra money on the side that I don't need in my business and I don't need to sustain me. And I want to kind of put it in, in a safe place as, as it were. So I set up a trust for my kids. I put that money in that trust. Uh, there's an independent party who has the ability to appoint property from that trust back to me. And so if in the future, there's a need for me to get access to that trust, even though I have no interest in the trust whatsoever. I'm not the trustee. I'm not a beneficiary. I have no other ability to get anything out of the trust. Um, that third party can exercise this power of appointment to then direct the trustee to give me assets out of the trust. And the idea would be, I would never, ever, ever get the benefit of that power, except in an extreme situation. Uh, so if, if instead I set up the trust and this independent third party has the ability to make the, the trustee give distributions to me. And every single year, like clockwork, exactly on the day that I ask for it, they do it. Uh, it probably doesn't work. I think a judge is going to look at that and say, uh, what you really did is you set up a self-settled spendthrift trust. And so that doesn't work. But just having that ability, at least uh, in some views of the way the law works, having the ability of a third party to exercise a power of appointment for you does not make you a trust beneficiary. And therefore, you're not within this, this self-settled spendthrift trust realm. It's a backdoor way to give something away, you know, a nest egg to give it away and then have an ability to access it in the future. That's the, that's the idea. That's and, exactly right. I mean, I, and I would just say that I might like the position of either the trustee or the settler a little bit more than you would as it would relate to creditors where I've given up discretion and a third party holds it entirely. And I have the ability to ask for that funds and they have the ability to give them to me. And I 
presume that both of those have taxable consequences around them, that simply because I've asked for it for the last five years and they've given it to me for the last five years. When my creditors come knocking on the door and say, yeah, you gave it to them, now give it to me. Or even a, or even a trustee comes knocking on the door and says, you've given it to him, now give it to me. I think that trustee, the the trustee of the SPAT has a, a, a very strong argument to say, I don't have to give that to you. I gave it to them because that was within my discretion. What they were asking for made sense. Um, and I chose to do that. And none of the beneficiaries sued me because of what I've done. And they're really the ones withstanding. Mm-hmm. You're not the one withstanding. Again, you have to be beyond that look back period, whether that's two, four years, or if you're in bankruptcy, 10 years. But if you're beyond that look back period, I do think that that provides more protection than just about anything else. And I think, quite frankly, if you wanted to be even more aggressive about it, you expose yourself a little bit more. But you could almost do the same thing where from day one, we're co-trustees. And when a request is made that from any of the beneficiaries to do it, if no one objects within 10 days, then either trustee can pay it. And as long as you have those procedures set up and they're followed, even if the trustee has never objected before when a beneficiary came and asked, when a creditor comes and asks, they have valid business reasons to say, no, I'm not, I'm not giving you the power that this other individual had. It's very similar to simply because I have a credit card, my creditors can't make me go use it to go pay them. I don't have to draw down on that line of credit. I've basically set, it, set up a credit account somewhere else. And so I do, uh, from a creditor perspective, I see where I have some grounds to stay in litigation to the end, but I don't know that all of my dollars are going to be very well spent. I'm going to be very much looking at, there is some risk to you and there's a, and there's a fair amount of expense to you. So let's talk about what a fair resolution is as opposed to, oh no, this is, this is just a scam. There's no way a court will ever uphold this. Yeah. And I think uh, you, you made a couple key uh, distinctions there, and that is with a with a SPAT, just such a good acronym. Uh, with a SPAT, you probably need. Uh, I don't know that anybody knows the answer for sure, but you probably need if you're going to do belts and suspenders, a couple of things working at the same time. One, you might, as as you point out, Isaac, you might want to have an ability for the beneficiaries who would be harmed by the exercise of the power of appointment to veto it in essence, or say not veto it by by not doing anything. Uh, give them a period of time where they have a say, and that if they allow it to happen, then it can happen. And then in addition to that, you want the party who's going to actually exercise the power of appointment or be the one that directs the trustee to be independent. You know, they're not just you. It's not somebody who's subordinate to you or, you know, it's not your wife or somebody so close to you that there's, they're just you in another form. It's really a third party. Uh, And if that's the case, you have no control over them. There's no way that your creditor would have any control over them. And there's no way that the creditor can get them to do something for you because you couldn't get them to do something for you. They were just doing it uh, because they made it an independent judgment that it was the right thing to do. What about uh, what about a slat then? What's the difference between the two? So a slat is a bit more simple. Um, a slat is the uh, is a spousal lifetime access trust. 
So basically that's an irrevocable trust that one spouse creates for their other spouse. And then each of them can be a beneficiary, say if they're going to do a trust for each other. And even though that sounds very simple and in a quick little nutshell there, um, I mean, it is a, it is a complicated trust. And um, if the, the trust is executed correctly, then theoretically, because each spouse is a beneficiary of each other's trust, being a spouse, you kind of have access to those funds, even though you really are not a beneficiary of the trust that you created. Yeah. So you have indirect access, I guess. I guess if your spouse likes you. Yeah, maybe. exactly. You better hope you're on good terms. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe they don't like you. They're not going to, when, when the money comes out, they're going to just screen you off. Like I'm going on that vacation now when that's allowed, you're just going to stay home. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That key part of asset protection, if you give up control, it tends to be more protected. And so if you're, if you have a documented part of your spouse excluding you from such things, uh, <laughs> probably a better, better case than otherwise. The slats have always concerned me a little bit more, especially in the situation where they're going to be about evenly funded. There's kind of a quid pro quo that says, well, I'm doing this, you know, I'm doing this one. So you're doing that one. It's not, I get to do, I'm doing this one and you do whatever you want. Those always have sense to me to be more of a self-settled trust where we've divided our community into separate property and now we're putting them in these slats. And so they're not self-settled. They're really me settling for your benefit and you settling for mine. That That's always looked like a pretty thin veil to me. Now, as those factors change, I think they become they can become more protected. If I'm a spouse and I'm putting 90% of the assets in for someone's, for my spouse's benefit, and they're putting 10% assets in for my benefit, and we, sure, we live in the same house and, you know, we eat the same groceries and, you know, some people pick up, some pick people pick up date night more often than the other one, you still have some control and they, they tend to have, they, it has the sense of more protection. And I would be more willing to bet on that one than I would be. We were community property. Now we're separate property. Now we have two even, even slack. No one can touch either of us. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. So if you, if you have a couple and both of them set up uh, what in, at least in the tax world is called reciprocal trust. So one, one for one spouse, one for the other spouse, and the terms of the trust are basically identical. And they're created essentially at the exact same time. Uh, it starts to look like nothing has economically changed between you and you maybe never really created real trusts to begin with because you're not in a different position than you were before you created the trust. And as a reminder at where this is kind of coming from, where this idea is coming from is that trusts are a division of property rights. And so if your property rights are in essence identical today than they were yesterday, you haven't really created a trust. So when you do these reciprocal trusts, courts have been willing to say, no, nothing really happened there. Sorry, we'll just ignore it. Uh, so I, yeah, I totally agree. There's, there's a big risk. If you're doing two of them uh, and they look, they look identical or close to identical, there's a big risk that they do not work. They don't work on a tax level uh, and they don't work on, 
on an asset protection level. I, I should say maybe for the record that there are also overlaying tax issues we haven't mentioned that are somewhat complicated and we're not going to talk about just so everybody knows that that also exists. There's there's more to this than what we've been describing. Uh, also, oftentimes, yeah. oh, sorry, go ahead. I, I, would, I would just add to that, that those are oftentimes until the creditor is knocking at the door and it's almost too late to do things other than put up some barriers in the hope that you'll be able to create some leverage. Whenever I'm advising on asset protection, we're doing it with the person. A, we're making sure they're comfortable from a flexibility perspective. And two, we're doing it with whomever their trusted tax advisor is. Because all of it, to make it very protect, you are moving it into separate entities. You are moving it into different taxable entities. And there may be some benefits to that, but there could also be substantial tax where the individual no longer has control and, and those assets and that income is not treated at an individual level, but really at a corporate level. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely a team effort to do any of this kind of planning. Well, I think that's a useful uh, maybe parting shot is that maybe a couple of things. One is, as we've talked about, uh, there are simple things that people can do that are just kind of given to you in the statute and you can never forget about the simple things like the ERISA plans and the life insurance, et cetera. And then beyond that, if you're doing the more complicated trust or entity kind of structure planning, um, you really can't, n- number one, you can't retain full control over the assets. Otherwise, it's not going to work like Isaac has been repeating, hoping that we will uh, believe him. And, and I do. I do believe you. And number two, you probably can't put all of your assets into that bucket. It's, you're going to take kind of the rainy day amount and you're going to put that into the asset protected bucket uh, because otherwise, uh, number one, it's, it's going to look disfavorable for you if you end up in court. But number two, for it to really work, you have to lose control over the asset and you wouldn't want to lose control and impoverish yourself uh, of all of the all of the property you need to live. Uh, and if I think usually when you sort of are guided by those principles, there are some really good and useful things that can be done for clients in a way that can bring them a lot of benefit and maybe more benefit than headache. Yeah. And then the only other thing that I would just add and, and the place that we wish we could have gotten to our clients earlier is if you're thinking about asset protection, if you're thinking about doing these kind of divisions, also look at it instead of doing it from a trust or an ownership perspective, look at whether or not it makes sense to do it from a creditor perspective. Create, whether it's for yourself, whether it's for a partner, whether it's from for a third party, can I do it in a way where I'm standing in the shoes as a creditor? Um, because that provides a substantial amount of protection going forward and a substantial amount of control because that creditor has to get paid off in full before anyone touches any of the other assets. And the last thing that people want to do after they're done litigating is go pay off, you know, a business partner, a family member, uh, or even potentially the principal that they've been litigating, litigating uh, with for the last three years in order to actually get to the core values. Yeah, very good point. Well, I think we've we've covered that uh, pretty exhaustively and we haven't even covered all of it. 
believe it or not. So, uh, but I couldn't thank you enough, Isaac. Really appreciate you taking time and, and lending your thoughts and teaching me. So I always learn a lot from you. So I appreciate that. As, as I do from you. And when, when you're the one speaking to me and I'm asking you questions, you know, you guys are doing a great job with the podcast. Uh, I wish you the best and thank you for having me on. And uh, we'll see where, uh, when we're not in such unknown times, whether you want to have me back on or not. <laughs> Yeah, we'll make that determination in the future. It's like everything else. We're going to take it day by day. That's all we can do right now. <laughs> yeah, right. All right. Thanks again. If you're enjoying what we're doing with the podcast, please subscribe and follow us on social at Wealth and Law and follow our blog, wealthandlaw.com. See you there.